Welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this conversation with my next guest, Dr. Keith Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm sure many of you have listened to multiple podcasts around college athletics and higher education, but I've yet to find any conversations that talks directly between an infectious disease doctor and exactly what college athletics should and should not be doing in the, in the coming days, weeks, and months. On top of that, Dr. Hamilton is a former college athlete. He was a track runner. So please listen carefully about how he explains both the challenges and the opportunities that college athletics has in front of it and pay particular attention to how he talks about this disease as an issue of waves. It's not just surviving the first wave, there'll be multiple waves and how he um, advises institutions to think about that. Something else I've noticed in the last couple days, and I hope you'll pay attention to it too. I'm concerned that athletics are not at the table as universities and colleges are starting to make opening or partially opening or delayed opening or remote only opening decisions. Um, High profile examples include the University of Kentucky, the California State University system, others where it feels like when you listen to the reporting out about it, you see virtually nothing said about athletics and and until the point they say, well, our athletics department will continue to examine and look at this. I feel that's misplaced because I think that as college athletes or students on the campus to completely ignore or not include athletics in that discussion about what the possibilities and the probabilities are, I think is very short-sighted. And I think in this day and age, athletics sports teams, physicians, athletic trainers, uh, sport administrators, and even coaches should be sitting at the table with the university trying to help them make the decision. They simply bring a different perspective that could be very valuable. And one of the great things about my conversation with Dr. Hamilton is that he talks about that value of committees and having a wide range of uh, possibilities. So I'm, I'm fearful that universities are losing that opportunity as these days tick off. The other thing he talks about in this podcast is the continuing uncertainty around both testing availability and the appropriateness of commandeering tests that could be used in the general public health sphere instead using them for athletes to be able to keep them on the field. He calls us into question about whether that's a moral obligation that universities ought to be addressing in this time and place because there'll be members of our communities, the communities that our universities live in, that will continue to need tests. And so the best thing you can do is to stay in touch with your local or regional public health folks and find out whether the percentage of residents and citizens that are tested is appropriate enough to be able to then divert testing to particular campuses for students and for athletes. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Karen Weaver. Welcome to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Keith Hamilton. Uh, Dr. Keith Hamilton is an MD at the University of Pennsylvania Medical System, also known as Penn Medicine. He is a director of antimicrobial stewardship. He's the director of infectious diseases transition service, and he is an associate professor of clinical medicine. And uh, not only do I consider Keith a colleague, I consider him a friend as well. 
And Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to have, great to talk to you. It's, it's wonderful to see you as well. Nice to see you as well. Uh, I know your, your world has been turned up upside down in the middle of this coronavirus. Um, how's, your, how's your work been? I mean, how has that gone for you? I think that, um, I mean, a, a lot of this is why we went into infectious diseases. It is uh, busy and a lot of uh, sleepless nights and long hours, but uh, we went into infectious diseases to help people and um, help society and public health in general. So even though it's been busy, it's also been um, motivating and, uh, and I think rejuvenating seeing the people around us and the dedication that they've put into um, to saving lives and, uh, and trying to develop uh, treatments and, and prevention strategies for, for this. So, even though it's been uh, busy, it, it also has been uh, fulfilling work. Philadelphia has been in one of the hot spots, certainly around the country. What have been your general observations about how, how well Philadelphia has done? I think as with all of this, it's important to realize that <laughs> this is the first time many of us have done this. So there are always going to be stumbles in the process. Um, I think a lot of people uh, were somewhat surprised with um, how quickly uh, this spread. So I definitely don't fault anyone for, for a response or lack of response, but I think um, what we do need to, um, to at least make sure that we're uh, conscious of doing uh, is that people will be faulted if they don't react to information that's clearly in front of them. And I think Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania in general, um, has done uh, a great job at, at responding to this quickly and decisively. And I think that's uh, been a large part of mitigating the, uh, the, the curve, so to speak, in, in Pennsylvania. There have not been uh, many hospitals that have been overwhelmed in Pennsylvania and not able to accommodate the, the volume. Um, but I think we were also fortunate. It's not to say that the states that were overwhelmed uh, in terms of uh, hospitals like New York uh, didn't necessarily see the writing on the wall. I, we've had the benefit of, of seeing what other states have done and what they've done, haven't done. And I think Pennsylvania has done a fine job of, of reacting to those, uh, that data. Well, let's bring this into sports a little bit. And of course, let's start with the last time that we saw each other, which was in December at a Philadelphia 76ers NBA basketball game. You and I went together. We sat about seven or eight rows from the court. We had good seats. We had a great time. We were with lots of other spectators. We were standing in lines that were not socially distant and doing all those things we couldn't imagine doing today. So talk me through what your reaction would be today if we try to do the same thing and go to a basketball game. That would be the wrong thing to do. Um, I, can, I can say uh, right off the bat, I'll say too, I mean, I was, um, I was a college athlete 
um, the, the viewers can't see, but I have my, my track and field wall behind me. Um, uh, and sports have defined who I am. Um, they've, I think they define a lot of um, uh, who a lot of people are. I think they define us as a society. They bring us together. Uh, they um, help us to be better people. I think we, we learn a lot from sports and I personally think sports are an essential part of society and, and a, an essential part of uh, everyday life for people, um, both in health and well-being and uh, collaboration and teamwork. There's, there's a, I think I've learned more from sports than I have in um, uh, all of my years of, of, um, of, of uh, educational training. Um, in terms of how to be a good person and, um, and how to work within a team. And uh, so I'll just say that I think sports are an essential part of, of who we are, and, and that's where, where I'm coming from. But, uh, and, and emotionally, I want to say, yes, <laughs> I want to come back and I want to do all this stuff and I want to see it again. And um, I want it to be the the way it used to be, but um, but unfortunately, it's it's um, that that should not happen now. What are some of the things that immediately come to mind that worry you about if if fans come back to basketball the way we saw it in December? So at least right now, um, so there are several methods that we use to control the spread and mitigate the effects of disease and infectious diseases. One of them is treatment, having an effective treatment, um, either a cure or if not, um, to mitigate the most severe um, parts of treatment uh, of the disease. We've just for the first time uh, demonstrated that there is a drug that can um, decrease the time needed to recovery from this disease. It is by far uh, a cure from the disease, uh, it, but it's a, a step in that direction. It's, it's that, not a cure. It's not a it cure. Is not, it is not a cure. Um, the drug I'm talking about is remdesivir, and, and we were a part of uh, a lot of those trials that um, that have demonstrated uh, the efficacy of remdesivir, but we're talking about decreasing time to recovery from uh, 15 days to 11 days. Uh, that's that's not a that's not a cure. Yeah, um, and there's a potential trend towards decrease in mortality, but it's a it's a um, it's not a substantive uh, change but it's a step in the step in the right direction. I think there uh, is still a lot we have to learn from this and we are learning it relatively quickly. So I think we will continue to take steps in that direction. That drug is not available um, to most places across the country and it's just being allocated and ramped up now. Um, so there's still a significant limitation to the access to even that one drug that, that has been demonstrated to have efficacy against uh, SARS-CoV-2. Another way is, um, is uh, 
preventative measures, preventing people from uh, actually acquiring the virus if they're exposed to that. And, and the main mechanism for that is, is vaccine. We don't have a vaccine now. There are multiple trials going on to, to, uh, to assess efficacy of, of vaccine. Uh, and I have, as, as confident as, as people can be, I, I think that we, we will find something that, uh, that will be an effective preventative strategy. But that's not in place, and that won't be in place for um, at, at least um, six months, more likely a year. And then the final thing that we have at our disposal as a tool is to prevent transmission from one, from, from one person to another. And the main mechanism that we have to do that um, in terms of this virus is by um, separating ourselves, uh, social distancing, um, not touching shared surfaces, wearing a mask to protect others if we're infected, um, and uh, contact tracing and testing, that uh, if we have uh, an identified case, uh, being able to make sure that person doesn't contact a lot of other people, and if they have contacted people, being able to trace them and make sure that they get appropriate care as well. So um, really of, of all of those, and, and testing is just being started to, to become widely available, although we're not testing as much as we, we should, uh, nor do we have enough tests available to, to test uh, a lot of people every single day. Uh, so really the only, only tool that we have now is to um, make sure that we're not infecting each other. So uh, going back to a situation where large crowds are assembled um, would be giving up that only tool that we have uh, to make sure that, um, that people aren't spreading this and, uh, and unnecessarily dying from this. Yeah. Um, you were a college athlete. You know how college athletes uh, behave on road trips and in locker rooms and before games and after games and in restaurants. How feasible is it for people to start thinking about bringing college athletes back to campus as, as they congregate for fall sports? I think when we think about um, college athletes, um, the first thing to remember is that they are college students um, first and foremost. So uh, I don't think we should think about exceptionalism in terms of uh, there being exceptions to the rule because those rules are in place and, and, uh, and individual colleges have placed those rules to protect not only the students, but also society in general. College, college athletes, um, are a unique population. We think of them as the healthiest, probably the healthiest members of our society. They're young. Um, they are the ones that are not going to be significantly impacted by this virus if they were to get it. 
but we also need to think of, of college athletes as uh, members of, of the larger university communities and the larger, the, the larger human communities that we, that we live in. And we also do need to remember that um, there are some vulnerable college athletes as well, although we think of them as the healthiest members of our society. Uh, there are people with asthma, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, who have a suppressed immune system that would be high risk for um, not only contracting this virus, but also progressing to more severe disease. So, um, so I think when we're thinking about um, having college athletics come back, we, we need to make sure that we're pausing and thinking about them in the larger community because it's not, not only to make sure that our college athletes are safe, but also that our entire community at large is safe. I think sometimes when people who don't really know how college sports work, they think that college athletes are isolated in their own little bubble inside the practice complex or the locker room. And yet there are multiple points, contact points, where they go back into the regular campus population and either could, could be a carrier themselves and carry it into the general student population who may not be as healthy or pick it up from someone and then bring it back into the team. So I shared with you the American College Health Guidelines, Association's guidelines that talked about what athletics should do. And one of the first thing they said was you need to organize a, a very active and vocal and large committee of people to start thinking about emergency preparedness and what you need to do should you have to take precautions like provide uh, resuscitation on someone who has COVID, potentially COVID-19 possible, or someone starts demonstrating symptoms. How do you deal with quarantining and isolating them? How do you contact tracing them? So can you address just some of those issues when you're all together in a facility in a, a weight room or a training room or you're working out in a team room, any of those kinds of things? Yeah, so first I'll, I'll address your point about committees. Um, and there's, <laughs> there's going to be the, um, the draw to just jump into the water um, and, and just, just do it. But, and, and I think people think of, of committees not um, <laughs> slowing things down. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a situation where we need to be slow. Um, and I think um, groups in general, there's also, I think, a, a push all around us to make individual decisions without any input. And what what i've seen and and i think when when people work together around this this common cause the product is always better and it's always safer and when you engage intentionally diverse opinions on how to look at at um at addressing this problem you get better answers you get answers that you didn't think about and you mentioned um, how to think about resuscitation. Um, if, if someone were to get sick or be or in, in the athletic room um, or just <laughs> athletic training in general. 
Um, those are things that most people wouldn't think about, but if you had an athletic trainer uh, available and, and part of this team, they would of course see that. Um, so I think when you're thinking about designing a, um, uh, a plan to re-implement college athletics, I think having a committee that's intentionally including the, all the stakeholders involved in college athletics, and, and I think we all think of the stakeholders as our athletic directors and our donors, um, but it's also the students, it's the janitor, janitorial staff, it's, um, it, it's, the, um, uh, it's the parents, uh, it's, the, it's the athletic training staff. So we need to make sure that we're, we're considering all of those approaches um, if not just to make sure we're getting a diversity of opinions, but also that we're not missing things. Um, so I, I think that the, the idea of coming up with a committee like this is, is really important um, in order to make sure we're doing it the, the most uh, cautious way possible. And then to your point too, we need to think, I mean, most people think about college athletics as, as what's on the field or in the rink or on the in the, on the gymnastics mat or the, the wrestling mat. But as with anything, that exists within uh, an interconnected web of, of, of human interactions. And that's what, what occurs and what you see, um, but also um, the, the shared equipment, um, uh, the shared weight equipment, the shared training uh, facilities and, and, and training equipment. Um, it is the um, apparatuses that we're using, uh, gymnastics, the, 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 the fomites, we call them in, in medicine, the, the inanimate objects that can have um, an infectious particle on it that other people can touch. And that, that might be a, a, a ball um, uh, as well. So, um, so we, we do need to think about not only what's occurring on the, the field or the, the, the the place of, of uh, sport, but also what what comes out of that, and, and the connections that the sport makes to um, to the university and to the society in general. One of the uh, things that I've also seen the American College Health Association talk about is having specific strategies for contact sports and non-contact sports. And I'm wondering what you think some of those specific strategies might be for contact sports. And that's a broad range. That is football. That is yeah. basketball. That is soccer. That is wrestling. Uh, you could put, you could put field hockey and lacrosse in there. Yeah. I mean, almost any team sport seems to involve some sort of contact. So how do we manage those? Can they be managed? Yeah, no. And, and I think what you've, what you've addressed is that, um, not all sports are created equally, um, as most people who play sports know. And um, people argue that one sport's better than another, but I don't think that's that's the case. But um, we all know that track and field is the best. But uh, <laughs> but I, but but they they are they're not created equally in terms of um, the the contact nature of of the sport and um, and and. Uh, Things like track and field, uh, swimming, um, might 
not have as much um, contact um, with with other athletes on a team, whereas other sports, wrestling, football, um, uh, basketball, you mentioned uh, field hockey, lacrosse, and I don't want to leave that my my not listing a sport is not is, <laughs> is not not being crit critical of, of the sport but um more of a, a flight of ideas but th but those those sports are are not the same in in their their contact so the sports that are um natural at creating social distancing um are probably a little bit more um amenable uh, to uh, a built-in uh, decreased risk of transmission of the viruses. But there are fomites in all those sports. Um, in, in relay races and track and field, there's a baton that goes from, from one person to the other. Um, there's, there's shared surfaces in, in pools and things like that. Um, so a one-size-fits-all model may not be the same. Um, those sports that are deemed to be a higher risk of transmission uh, probably need um, in this setting of, of this not disappearing. So assuming that this is still present in our society and, and we don't have effective ways of, of controlling the, the spread through vaccination or, or, um, or treatment, uh, we need to make sure that those sports that are at higher risk of transmission we're doing all of the things that we can do to make sure that there aren't infected people that are entering into those games. And that might be uh, uh, testing every day, um, but testing every day still may miss cases um, uh, and people could still be infectious. So you also need to have a plan in place to be able to trace those contacts um, in, in a systematic way uh, and a plan in place to know when you need to stop um, and, and, uh, and call it quits or put it on pause for a while if, if there's been um, a, a significant event that might put others at risk. So, so how do we do testing then if we're going to do it every day? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of numbers of staff members involved to do it? Let's say we've got 200 fall sport athletes of different sports around the facility. How do we make that look? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you need to, the, the first thing is you need to make sure that you have tests available. And, um, and we are increasing uh, testing capacity in the, in the country. Uh, we are increasing the, the, number, the, the number of tests that we can actually do in a given day. I think the most important thing that we need to do is to make sure that we have enough available for the most vulnerable parts of our population and the, the people who are going to be uh, have the potential of getting sickest, um, and and in which uh, treatment needs to be delivered quickly. So, um, so once we we have enough tests to to do that, um, then that, then that I think that's the starting point when when we can uh, think about having more uh, widely used tests uh, for more for screening purposes in the uh, in college athletics. So. 
that could vary from community to community. So you may want to start practice, let's say on August 15th, but your community may not be providing enough tests for the most, the, the most needy or the most uh, at risk. So you're saying a lot of this is also for the schools to check in with their local hospitals and healthcare providers to see if their needs are being met first. Yeah, I, I think this needs to be done um, cautiously and, and working with public health agencies who are going to be the ones that have the best understanding of what a, a region's testing capacity is. And your point, too, about um, a regional approach to this is also, is also important because when we uh, get come to the fall or late summer, um, when... when uh, when camps are starting uh, for college sports, we need to, um, there are gonna be some regions where cases are minimal. There are gonna be some cases, some places where cases may be going up. Um, and, uh, and just because one community is, is ready to start doesn't mean others are ready to start from just a, a, a prevalence of, of infection standpoint let alone a uh, number of tests. So that, that does need to be done on, on more of a regional basis as well. Um, I think that too, um, again, just the, going back to the analogy of just jumping in, uh, there's, just, there's such a draw to do that. You wanna get every conference up and running and, um, uh, and, and moving forward, but we we need to we need to stick one toe in the water before we jump in and i think uh as we start to do this at least my in my humble opinion uh jumping into the water um without looking is 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 probably not the right thing to do it and there might be some sports um some regions that would be a little bit more amenable to doing this and we will make mistakes. Um, even the most evidence-based approach, you, you line up all your data in a row. Again, I just remember that data should guide us here right. and, um, and that we, we should not um, resort to gut feeling when it comes to this. Um, data increases our chances of being right, um, but sometimes we are wrong. And, um, and when we do make mistakes, it's better to have made mistakes in, in, a, in a small step as opposed to uh, rolling everything out and making uh, a mistake that has wide-reaching consequences. So this probably should be done in pilot settings where um, we are able to do this in a controlled fashion um, but we're also able to rapidly learn from the mistakes that we make so that um, we can share that knowledge uh, throughout the, the college communities. So uh, would you think it'd be wiser to start with the sports that have the least uh, contact and then work your way up to the sports that have the most contact? I am extremely biased in this, <laughs> uh, having done a sport that and requires almost no contact. So I'm, I'm going to probably defer the answer to that question because we also shouldn't base our decisions on, uh, on, on people who are biased. I, I am typically <laughs> inherently biased in that, in that regard. Um, uh, but it, it might be if we deem it safe 
for um, all sports to return, there's something to be said about um, about testing because a, a, a track and field meet isn't the same as a football game. Um, uh, first of all, no one comes to watch track and field meets. Um, <laughs> parents, uh, yeah. <laughs> parents, yeah. Um, but um, but but there's something to be said about um, thinking about implementation on a diverse scale, um, even though uh, even though e even though there's um, sports are different and there might be some that are a little bit safer to return to. If we deem that that sports in general are safe to return to, I think. Um, there's there's there are different lessons that we can learn from uh, a sport like football um, versus a sport like swimming, for instance. Right, right. So to, so to wrap this up, I have two final questions for you. One of them is the fact that college presidents are under tremendous pressure right now to decide about fall and whether they're going to have their students on campus or off campus. And if they're on campus, then the assumption has been made if the students return, then the athletes return. How can they, what guidance can you provide in helping them make that decision in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure that anyone can provide uh, great guidance in terms of what to do. Um, what I would suggest is now's the time to start planning for what we would consider to be a best case scenario. Um, it's also worth planning a worst case scenario as well. Um, what, if, what if we are in a worst case scenario, what do we do then? And what if we're in a best case scenario? So I think thinking about the two extremes uh, is, is good because then you're, you're, you've, you've covered your basis on, on one end and the other. But the most important thing that you need to be aware of is, is and you need to, to do is, is be flexible. And the virus, unfortunately, does not respect what we want it to do. Um, and uh, what happens is, uh, is, uh, is, is not predictable at this point. So if a plan is implemented, we also need to be able to adjust that plan um, as, as we get emerging data. And I think that's been a frustration to society because they, you hear one thing initially, do this, and then you hear do that. And it's not that people <laughs> um, can't make up their mind it's that uh, things change and we do things for different reasons and and uh and it would be wrong if if we it, it, the wrong thing to do would be to come up with a plan and say we've made up our mind and we're going to do this and implement it and and move forward with it um even though it can be frustrating um it, that's done for the right reasons. It's done to, to, to keep people healthy and to save lives. So although it can be frustrating as a society, it's, it's the right thing to do. And we just need to make sure that we're, we're framing it as such. And, and the last question I wanted to ask you was some, uh, there's, it seems to be this emerging sense that we can just clean the virus away by using antimicrobial cleaners in our weight rooms and our training rooms and that type of thing. What advice do you have for professionals who are trying to find ways to keep those areas as clean as possible? So I think that um, 
I mean, most cleaning products that we use for disinfection, um, including alcohol-based products, uh, ammonia-based pot, pot products, bleach-based products, would will kill the virus. The um, those uh, products, disinfectants, uh, only last on a surface for um, a given amount of time. So if someone else has, has used uh, equipment or a shared surface um, in the time that it's been disinfected, uh, it will um, potentially have virus particles on it. So uh, while cleaning, um, multiple times a day um, without reference for individual use probably will decrease the risk of transmission of the virus. It does not make it zero. Um, and to optimize the chances for success, um, shared objects would need to be disinfected on a, on a regular basis. Great, great. Well, Keith, thank you so much for spending some time and sharing your expertise and your observations with my listeners. Uh, as you said, data should drive everything and information should drive your decisions. So thank you so much. No, no problem. And I would also say too that um, don't be afraid. Um, we have uh, a lot of people working hard on this and um, most people, if they got this virus, would be totally fine. And a lot of what we do should not be out of fear. Um, it should be out of compassion. And that's why we're doing what, we, what we're doing is, is not, is, it shouldn't be out of fear um, for protection of ourselves. It's, it's, to, it's for compassion uh, for other people and the most vulnerable parts of society. So I, I think the, the, the last word that I, I'll, I'll give is, is don't, don't be afraid of this. Um, uh, if we're doing the right things, we'll all be okay as a society. And remember that, that what we're doing and I think how we should live every day um, as, as uh, members of the society as we go through this is the thing, most of the things that we're doing are not to protect ourselves or to protect other people. And, and, um, and, and keep compassion guiding us as well as data. So, so data and compassion um, even though we stumble, will always lead us down the right path. Well, thank you for all the work that you and your colleagues across the healthcare systems have been doing on, on all of our behalfs. I mean, I can, I can see that, you know, you're fatigued and I'm sure many of your colleagues are tired as well. This has been a long few months and it's not going to get any shorter. And just know on behalf of all of us that uh, we're so grateful and so pleased that you all have dedicated your lives to helping us live better ones ourselves. Thank you. My pleasure. Once again, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. And I hope that you'll share some of these uh, podcasts with your colleagues around the country. I think it's important to have a dialogue around college athletics at this very critical time in higher education's uh, growth cycle. And I think there are more things that we ought to be discussing rather than just can we return to sports and can fans come to our games. These are really pivotal moments for college athletics and also for higher education, and they require deeper discussions and deeper debates. Please share. Thanks for listening.